Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 39. Continuing to read through the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter 39. We'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 23. This is God's word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 7. We come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the end of the first large major section in Matthew. We said before that Matthew structured his gospel around 
uh, five sets of extended narrative and extended discourse. Uh, this brings the first extended discourse to a close. Following this, we'll enter back into a prolonged section of narrative. But the Lord continues to exhort those who have heard what is probably the greatest sermon the world has ever seen. He continues to exhort the hearers of this sermon not to let it fall void in their souls, but to take hold of what has been said, not just in faith, but also in life, in practice. And so he brings this discourse to a close with these striking words. This is God's word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. My Father, heaven and earth will fade away, uh, but your word remains forever. And here we are. I told plainly that the words of your son are a sure foundation. And the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, O oh Lord. And in your purposes and in your plans, this is marvelous. And so as we hear the words of our King, O oh Lord, and we hear this exhortation and indeed instruction and warning, Father, give us the ears to hear and the hearts to receive. Prepare our hearts like that good soil which received of the seed of the word and yielded a bounty. 30, 60, 100 fold. Keep us from rocks, O Lord. Keep us from thorns. Protect us from the sun. Which beats upon rootless plants and causes them to wither. Root us in your word, root us in the sun, cause us to bear much fruit as we are your workmanship, O Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. I want to draw your attention to three things from this text. The storm is coming. The storm has a purpose. And we are called to build well. First, the storm is coming. Mm. You can start at the end of both of these men's lives. The end of both stories, the one who builds on the rock, the one who builds on the sand, is a storm. Mm. It's striking in this short section because it's a rather formulaic set of three things. It's striking in the Greek. It's a very specific structure, and it 
catches the eye when you read it. You can even hear it in English. And the rains fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. And then again, and the rains fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and they beat against the house. It's rather striking. It catches the eye. It catches the ear. It's an intense image. In the region of Galilee, perhaps you know, uh, there would be these sudden storms erupt over the Sea of Galilee and in that region. And because it was a somewhat mountainous region, these flash floods would come. And so in an instance, the world would, in an instant, the world would be transformed, as it were, calm, steady, orderly. And then chaos, disorder, fear. Children, we marked the storms that we experience here in Minnesota. Not too long ago, some of our members had massive hail fall out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, the heavens open and that which was not threatening became quite dangerous. Storms can be rather scary. Matthew's gospel will depict this intense experience at a number of junctures in the lives of the disciples. Storms play a role in their life of discipleship. Jesus is with them on the boat. Storm, chaos, fear. Jesus sends them ahead of them. Storm, chaos, fear. Mm. What happened to them in their daily life? They really experienced that. They were really there, sudden storm. They were really going ahead of him, sudden storm. But it's full of meaning. He wouldn't just have us mark the daily itinerary of the disciples and think, oh man, what a bummer the weather was so bad. No, it's to teach us that in the life of discipleship, there are storms. What are the storms? Well, the Lord's already said that following him will bring about persecution, tribulation. Matthew 5, 10 and 11, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You are blessed when they insult you, persecute you, falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Additionally, at the end of the gospel, he talks about the wars and the famines and the earthquakes and the diseases that are going to wash over this sad world upon Christian and non-Christian alike. Matthew 24, 7 and 9. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Don't take any solace if you're a preterist there. All nations because of my name. That's the church age, beloved. What happens there? God's judgments wash over this sad world and fear emerges and out of fear comes what? Hatred, cruelty. Then they will persecute you and hand you over. One of the early church fathers has said that there's not a single natural disaster that has befallen the kingdom of man out of which has not emerged the response, the Christians to the lions. (laughs) 
Think, oh, well, that was once upon a time. Those were unsophisticated pagans. The New York Times ran pieces about how churches were primarily responsible for the spread of COVID. It's nonsense. It's the same thing. It's fear stirring up hatred, hatred needing to find an object, Christians being a convenient object. Storms are coming. They'll continue to come because God's judgments continue to wash over this sad world. Belonging to Christ in true and saving faith does not spare us from the storm, beloved. Belonging to Christ in true and saving faith does not spare you the experience of the storm. Rather, in Christ, you are kept through the storm. In God's wisdom, he has seen it fit to subject us as his people to these difficulties. Indeed, this is the very way unto heaven, storms. Acts 14, 22, and Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. The Christian life promises you suffering. (laughs) The narrow way is the way of affliction. You don't have to go out and look for it, but you also ought not to be surprised when it comes because God has purposed this path, the stormy road to be the entrance into the kingdom. It's his design. And we may go further. The storm comes from his hand. Is he not the Lord of the storm? Isn't that partly what the disciples encountered most vividly there upon the waves of Galilee? The Lord uses the image here of falling rain. The rains fell. Very clearly depicts trials. You can go on and say that the storm of the Lord, the day of the Lord, depicts that last day of judgment. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. There's not one or the other, and I don't think Scripture divides between those two things. But it strikes me as important that here he says, the rains shall fall in tribulation. But in Matthew 5.45, he's already reminded us that your Father in heaven causes the rain to fall. It's the same word, same verb. In our text, the rains are tribulation. In Matthew 5, it's the rains of plain goodness. Thus, whether it's in blessing or in affliction, believers are called to acknowledge and receive in faith and humility whatever it is that the Father appoints for us. Psalm 71, verse 20. You, O God, have made me see many troubles and calamities. That's striking. Psalm 71 is clearly the song of an old man. He's reflecting upon the entirety of his life, and he comes to the end. He looks back at all of the difficulties which has characterized his life, and what does he say? He could say much 
beyond this, but he doesn't say less than this. You, O God, have made me see many troubles and calamities. As he's nearing the end, as he's nearing the final trouble, the crossing of the River Jordan into the land of Canaan, as it were, how fitting it is that he reflects upon all of the many rivers that he's had to cross and the one who appointed them to be crossed. And how does he conclude? But you will revive me again. I trust that you can look back on troubles in your life. I trust that because you're here still saying that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's brought you through them. I trust you can even glimpse something of how he's worked them for your good. How he adorned those hard times with mercy and grace. How he opened unto you a fountain of comfort known only in that difficulty. Have you had those experiences with the Lord? Those of you who are young, learn from those who are old or just read Psalm 71. <laughs> this is the way of our God. He doesn't spare from the fire. He doesn't spare from the waters. But he does bring us through. Maybe you're in the midst of such a season now. Storms can be incredibly disorienting, can't they? The calm of a day on the shores of Galilee in an instant flips the world upside down. That can be incredibly disorienting. The sky, which was just fair hours ago, now opens with stones the size of tennis balls. That can be terribly disorienting. Paul was encouraging the disciples to press on in faith, assuring them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Let not the disorientation remove from you the certainty that Christ is with you. So we just read providentially in Genesis 39, sold into slavery, bought by an Egyptian, the Lord was with Joseph falsely accused, tried and imprisoned, and the Lord was with Joseph. How tempting it would have been to read in both of those circumstances, I am forsaken. I have been cast off. I have been forgotten of the Lord. And the Lord was with Joseph. Emmanuel and Jesus Christ called them and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me and behold, I am with you until the end of the age. Make no mistake, it is the Lord of the storm who sends the storms, but at the same time, he reminds us that in the midst of the storms which he sends, he is our refuge and our strength. There's nothing contradictory about those statements, beloved. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Psalm 84, 12, how blessed is the one who trusts in you, O Lord of hosts. If you're in the midst of the storms of adversity now, 
the many tribulations which God's word assures us are going to cover the path into the entrance of the kingdom of heaven. Let his word of promise override your perception of circumstance. I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. But perhaps you're here and you've never felt the fragility of your life. You've never fled in faith to the only sure refuge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, if you've not yet known storms of great difficulty, you will. They come to the righteous and the unrighteous, the Christian and the unchristian, the good and the ill alike. No one is promised ease all of their days. Even the rich who have been pampered beyond imagination must come to the day of death, beloved. They must. But even that's a rarity. The majority experience under the sun is the day that the hard diagnosis comes. The day that the loved one has died. Precursors of the day of death. Winds and waves and flood, all of them. If you have not yet fled to Christ as the only ark through the flood, as the only provision through the storms, hear this kind word of warning. There is no other rock. There is no other safe passage. Christ alone, who has already weathered the storm of judgment, is the only one who has emerged safely upon the other side into the land of abundance, into the land of life, into the very throne room of God as one who has been declared worthy, who now turns and says, come to me and I will ferry you through. Hear these words, beloved. Flee to him and find in him a faithful and a true shelter amidst the stormy blast. But we can also go on to observe that if God is the one who sends the storm, then we can be sure that the one who does all things well has a purpose in the storm. So second, we mark the purposes of the storm, namely to reveal and to confirm. Calvin points out for us that these two houses likely look identical until the day of trouble. What made these difference was not apparent at first glance. The storm revealed the truth that lay unseen. Both houses are subject to the same storm. One stood, one fell, and it's not plain why until we're told. Verse 25, because the foundation was on the rock, the one house stood. And it doesn't state it, but it's very plain why. The other house fell because its foundation was not upon the rock. It was upon the sand. God is the one who sends the storm. The storm serves God's purposes. And in general, what does the storm do according to this passage? The storm reveals. Trouble shows us what we're building on. Come on, guys. We just experienced this. 
the world was upended in a chaos that none of us had experienced. Where did the anxieties and the apprehensions of your heart go? What foundations were laid bare in that storm? The Lord is often pleased to try his subjects, to subject subject them to trials. We don't like this idea. Let's say it right, right out. We do not like this idea. That's a vestige of our propensity to pretend like we're gods. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm the living and true God. That's who he is. Well, who do you think I am? You are clay in the hands of a potter. That's who he says you are. He is free to make a trial of you. He is free to make a trial of us. Scripture is plain that he does this. Psalm 66, for you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. It's very likely that Peter had that very passage in mind when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, for a little while you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you hear both passages, what the adversity, the trials, the difficulties are doing in the plans and the purposes of God? Trying, but also refining. You hear that, right? Both passages. You've tried us as silver is tried. Silver goes into a furnace to remove dross. Peter shifts to a different precious metal, gold. Same image, tested by fire. He says even gold perishes in the grand scheme of things. It's tested by fire to make it more pure. You don't perish because you've been begotten by the abiding eternal word of God. The same principle is working out. That new creation, which he has caused to burst forth in your life, is refined by the trials of adversity. There's a popular image illustrating this very thing. Children, have you ever made fresh squeezed orange juice? Have you ever made freshly squeezed orange juice? Sounds delicious. If you skipped breakfast, I'm sorry for this illustration. How do you make fresh squeezed orange juice? You get oranges, you put them in a press, and you push down. And what comes out of the orange? Does apple juice come out of the orange? Does grape juice come out of the orange? No, orange juice comes out of the orange. The pressure reveals what's inside the orange. Think about how often the mildest forms of adversity in our lives result in cruelty and fear. I trust you're thinking about them now. You get cut off on the highway and you sound off on someone. Your kids defy you and you lose it. Somebody fails, up to li- fails to live up to your expectation and you come down on them in cruelty. 
denouncing everyone as incompetent except you. Revealing, isn't it? Our immediate action, uh, reaction to such a picture of the revealing power of adversity ought to be humility, beloved. We've talked about this before. We tend to think that situations and circumstances create our sinful responses. Mark the images. Adversity, difficulty, floods, fires do not create your sin. They reveal your sin, beloved. They show you how unsound the structure is, beloved. It's humbling, isn't it? Can you feel the humbling force in this? This very week was likely adorned with dozens of these very experiences. There's very clearly a sense in which these are two distinct groups. That's true. But we also do well to mark how light winds and gentle rains cause us a near collapse. And let that work humility in us. And let that drive us to the foundation. But if it serves to reveal, I trust that it's also served to confirm as well. Many of you have been through great difficulties in life, and the fact that you are still declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord ought to confirm in you that something other than the flesh is at work in you. The fact that you're here to worship him, the fact that you still earnestly follow him, the fact that in your heart of hearts you know that his word is good and that your blessedness is to be found in being made like him, the fact that you can still see those things, the fact that you still desire those things, the fact that you're still stumblingly pursuing those things should be encouragement to you for it's a confirmation that you are indeed a participant in grace. And that's plain, that the winds and the waves don't just reveal, they serve to confirm that there is building upon the foundation. How do I know that I'm being confirmed by the winds and the waves? It's a very simple answer in one respect. One of our elders has said this on numerous occasions, and it's so sound that I'm stealing it from him. Does the difficulty send you running to Christ or away from him? Do the winds and the waves send you to Christ or away from him? That's the picture in Revelation. We've got some Revelation scholars here, or men in the men's Bible study going through Revelation. One of the things that you note about a heart that is not a participant in grace is that as the judgments wash upon this sad world, what do they do? No one repents, no one turns to, they turn away, and they blaspheme. If at the end of the day, when all the dust has settled, even if it's a wrestling with the Lord in prayer, in lament, grappling with him in earnest, if it's to him that you're running, if it's to him that your prayers are raising, if it's to him that you're looking, then you can be encouraged beloved 
that the difficulties of the wind and the waves is serving to confirm that indeed the Spirit is at work because that is not a response of the flesh, beloved. Psalm 66, which we just cited, ends with a lovely picture. For you, O God, have tested. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let me... You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire. We went through water. But you brought us out into places of abundance. Trials in the lives of his true children reveal and refine the faith that God has granted by his grace and is sustaining in his mercy. And we can go further still they also reveal that great is his faithfulness. That he will not let a single promise fall void, beloved. And we don't have to squint at the sometimes inscrutable workings of God in providence to see this. For this is what we see plainly written in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? the beloved son who is not spared the storm of the cross, the fires of accusation. He was subjected to that, was he not? And what did it reveal? It revealed one in whom there was a pure heart through and through. It revealed a faithful son who obeyed the father even unto death. And it revealed a faithful father who did not abandon his holy one unto corruption, but raised him up, vindicated him, and seated him at the right hand. Psalm 71 again. You caused me to experience many troubles and misfortunes, but you will revive me again. You will bring me up again, even from the depth of the earth. The future promise that the psalmist there clung to as he was nearing that great day of trouble, the day of death, beloved. The certainty that he had rooted in the very word of God, we see confirmed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Father brought him into a time of calamity and yet raised him again from the depths of the earth, showing that not even death can separate from the love and the faithfulness of God. Beloved, let that work in you a confidence towards him. That he will see you through these things and work them for your good. And until that great day of trouble comes, what are we called to do? Practice. This could be a sermon in and of itself. This is the main point that he's trying to make. Build well. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Well, first we need to ask, what are these words of mine? It's a striking phrase again in the Greek. It's a strange locution. These words of mine. 
everyone who hears and does these words of mine. What are these words of mine? Most obviously, it's the sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount, like most obviously. That's, that is so plainly the most obvious sense of those words. It slaps you in the face. You can go on from there and say it's, it's everything that the Son teaches us from faith in him, repentance in him, following after him in love, meekness, humility. It's the whole expanse of Christ's teaching to the disciples. And we can note here that those words contain not something just to be believed, but something to be practiced. I choose the word practice there on purpose because we here do and we get nervous because we're Protestants. <laughs> but if we say practice, maybe that's better. I don't know. I'm just trying to. There's a whole section in the Westminster Confession of Faith on good works, so we shouldn't break out in hives when we talk about works. It's right there. But out of deference to the hives, I say practice. <laughs> Does Christ expect us to practice his word? It's so, it's so plain. It's so obvious. Like, yes, he does. And we can make a distinction in this, which encapsulates the distinction which we alluded to two weeks ago. Was it last week? Just last week. Time is so funny. <laughs> Notice that the building isn't the foundation. So even as Christ is pressing upon our hearts the necessity of both hearing and doing, he's also differentiating between his works and words and our response. There's only one foundation. <laughs> it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Our works, our words, as important as they are, as necessary as they are, they don't sink to that level, if you will. But it's so plain that he's saying hear and do, and scripture is replete with warnings about the danger of hearing and not doing. I mean, James talks about this. James could be a veritable commentary on this passage be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. When Jesus' family comes to him, his mother, his brothers, sisters, they say, we want to see him. And the crowd tells him, your mother and your brother and your sisters are here. What does Jesus say? Those who hear and do my father's will, they are my mother, brother, and sisters. In the warning against being mere hearers of the word, we hear something true and important, beloved. It would be easy to just come here week in and week out and see Michael flail about and sneak in references to Tolstoy. Sometimes it's entertaining, sometimes it's not so entertaining. You can live a whole life like that and be mere hearers of the word. Christ says, mark our tendency not to bring the word to full fruition. For the fruition of the word, the fruition of faith is earnest obedience 
to what the Son calls us to do? Is this something that we can do? Can we do Christ's word? Again, it's a complicated answer. The answer is left to yourself, no. Considered natively, no. Mark how the sermon began. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourners. What's the poverty? What's the mourning? It's the native inability to do that which is so blatantly good. Beloved, make no mistake, everything he says here is so good. It's so pure. It's so beautiful. Our allergy to do Christ's word sometimes leads us to overlook the simple fact that it's just so beautiful. Like, oh, wow, would that I could do that from the heart. And that's how he goes on. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourning. Why are you mourning? What is your poverty? You have no native ability to do this. You ought to mourn that. Okay, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It starts to generate a certain reality of the soul. I can't do that which is good. I have no ground to rise up against other people who are in the exact same position that I I am, but oh, that you would feed me on righteousness. Oh, that I could be just a little bit more like you. That would be wonderful. Because I'm sick of being the dark version of me. I'm sick of being this perverse and contorted version of me. I'm sick of it. And so there's a hunger, there's a thirst that bursts forth to be what he promises we will be, beloved. We'll be like him. We've remarked on the climactic point of being called sons of God and the Beatitudes, it still strikes and it strikes me as pertinent right here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How can being called sons of God be better than seeing God? The only thing better than seeing God is being like God. God, beloved. This is what Christ came to bring about, beloved. Now in part, but can you feel the longing that bursts forth? Do the words of Christ, beloved. Meekness, mercy, peacemaking, Humility, seeking to live at peace, seeking to do good even to those who persecute you, praying in earnest, giving in earnest, receiving in trust. Do those words, beloved. Feel your native inability. Mourn your native inability. Let your native inability work a meekness in you. And then in hunger, pray. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, it's his good pleasure to do such things. And the blessing which is laid out here in exercising our faith, in earnest struggle to fight against that flesh and cling to the word of Christ, even when we don't want to, the blessing that comes here is that he confirms his faithfulness, beloved. And you're building upon the foundation for that day of trouble when he's going to call you to trust his word even as the winds and the waves and the rains and the fires break forth with an intensity that threatens to undo us. But for those built upon the rock, the house stands, beloved, because God is pleased to manifest to this sad world that he's building a new creation. And this to the praise of his name. Join me in prayer. Father, help us to be hearers and doers of your word. Guard us from that tendency to be mere hearers. Help us to see the loveliness of what Christ himself lays forth here. Create in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Keep us from growing discouraged, Lord, as we inevitably stumble. Uphold us, Father, in your mercy and in your grace, reminding us of all of the blessings which come to us in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask in his name, amen.